0: Good evening, everybody. Uh, my name's Andrew. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your word would live among us tonight and bear fruit for your glory. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, this evening, uh, we come to the end of the main body of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, For those who have been with us from the beginning, you may have noticed that verse 12, where Jesus says, this is the law and the prophets, this sums up the law and the prophets, it kind of is like a bookend with chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, where Jesus says, he's come to fulfill the law and the prophets. And if I can sum up, if I could have a go at summing up the main message of the Sermon on the Mount, it's basically this. It's basically about how to live with God in full view. Jesus is challenging us to live lives centered upon God rather than upon ourselves. And the passage before us tonight actually does exactly the same thing. It calls us to live with God in full view. It's the same kind of thing we've been doing. as Last week we looked at Seeking First the Kingdom. And as we prayed the Lord's Prayer throughout this series, we've been trying to work out what it looks like to live our lives oriented around God. But it may not be obvious that the passage before us this evening is actually about this, of course, because it contains some bits that we're kind of familiar with and that just seem like familiar moral principles. Do not judge is one of them, and do unto others as you would have them do unto you. They're things we know about in our culture. And it seems like these are just a bit disconnected. But this evening I want to I put to you that actually these things don't really make sense when they're detached from Jesus' teaching about God, from Jesus' call to center our lives upon God. In the passage before us this evening we've got four commands, two kind of big ones with an explanation and two little ones. We've got two don'ts and then two do's. As I go through, I'm going to just at a couple of moments pause for questions, and Roger will have a microphone. And so if something puzzles you as we go through, uh, there'll be an opportunity for you to ask about it, and we'll see what we can do. Uh, If you don't have questions, that's fine as well, of course. Well, let's start with the don'ts. Do not judge, says Jesus, verse 1 what does that mean? What does it mean to not judge? Well, this is actually tricky, isn't it? Because, of course, we've got to make judgments all the time. We're making decisions all the time. We're we're choosing between things all the time. Now, it's pretty clear that Jesus is not interested really in our choice between a latte or an espresso. He's talking about how we treat other people. But even then, actually, it's still a bit tricky isn't it because don't we have to make judgments about other people don't parents have to decide this person is not suitable to be a babysitter don't bosses have to decide i'm going to give a promotion to this person and not this person i think jesus words are misunderstood if they're taken as a kind of absolute general prohibition do not judge nothing else to say What what Jesus actually says, if you look there in verse 1, what Jesus actually says is, do not judge, or you will be judged, or or literally actually, do not judge so that you may not be judged. And the point of Jesus' words, that is, is is not so much to stop us from ever making judgments, but to remind us that one day we will all face judgment. The measure we use will be held up against us. And that should make us hesitate before being being too confident about our own capacity to judge. This is the point of Jesus' illustration in uh, verses 3 to 5 as well. Um, He pictures somebody who who sees a speck of sawdust in somebody else's eye. But the problem is they've got uh, what is a plank, or you could translate it a roof beam, sticking out of their own eye. Now, I didn't have a roof beam, but this is supposed to be hilariously funny, right? Jesus, ah, ah, Rod, you have a speck in your eye, you know, and it's just crazy, and you look stupid, and that's... Sorry. That's Jesus' point. He's like, you hypocrites. That's what we look like when we judge, says Jesus. What Jesus is doing here, you see, is calling us to remember that there's a bigger context there is one who will judge us. And our judgments will come back at us one day. Now, without this theological context, if I can call it that, this this God-related context, Jesus' words don't really work. You can see this in the way our culture actually struggles with this idea of not judging today. Um, As an example, I want to read you A passage from an opinion piece by Mia Friedman from February. Um, She's commenting about a report of a woman who picked up her kids from school very drunk and then crashed her car. Uh, Everybody was okay, but she was very angry. It's a bit long, but just go with it. It's really interesting. Compassion, she says. Don't judge. Well, I'm struggling here. I'm judging. I'm not just judging. I'm stating a fact. Anyone who drinks themselves stupid and gets behind the wheel of a car is an idiot. And anyone who does it with their children in the car is a bad parent. Shall we define bad parent in this instance? Anyone who puts their child's life at risk or who intentionally harms their child. That's my definition. I don't care why they did it. That is immaterial. She could have killed her children. And don't even get me started on all the other children and adults she could have killed by drinking herself virtually into a coma and then getting into a car. So yes, I'm going to judge. I'm going to say it's appalling that she got in that car. I'm going to say it's appalling that even though it was apparently well known that the woman had a drinking problem, she was still allowed access to the car. Not to mention that she was left alone with a baby. How can you not judge that? How can you not say that's not okay? Now I don't know what you think of that. But we need to understand what has happened here. What has happened is that Jesus' call to judge not has been detached from its theological moorings, so to speak. So it's no longer connected to the fact that God will judge. It's just an isolated kind of moral principle. But when it's isolated like this, the command to not judge is actually intolerable. Because although not judging might sound like a good idea, when you're confronted with real wrongs, you just can't keep doing it. As she says, how can you say that's not okay? How can you not say that's not okay? However much we might not like what Friedman says here, she has a point, right? We need judgment. We demand it. When you hear about the things people actually do to each other, How can we be okay with there being no judgment? But without God's judgment, all we're left with is our own judgments. And that's a problem because our own judgments are so imperfect, aren't they? We know that. They so quickly turn into the kind of self-righteous indignation that we see here. They so easily smack of a sense of self-awareness and personal preference, they turn into, frankly, ugly hypocrisy so quickly. And yet, what's the alternative? As Friedman points out, we, we can't really be happy with do not judge when it's been turned into just a kind of wet relativism where nothing matters. This is the problem our culture finds itself in because it's forgotten or chosen to ignore the idea of God's judgment. Thankfully, though, there is something better than either a weak policy of just turning a blind eye or a kind of descent into arrogant judgmentalism. We have something better because we can remember that there is a God who will judge And we can learn to act on the basis of that. And what this will do, I think, is it will make us humble, but still involved. On the one hand, this has got to make us humble, remembering God's judgment, doesn't it? It will make us examine ourselves first before we hold a measure up against others. It will make us hesitate before being quite so confident that we know the final truth about this person. And it'll make us hesitate that we're ever going to be in a position to really pronounce it. But it's not that believing in God's judgment will stop us being involved either. It, it it won't make us give up on any attempt to call things for what they are. As I've suggested this is actually not Jesus' point. And that's confirmed by the fact that in verse 5 if you have a look at it there, in verse 5 he concludes then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. The point is to help somebody. We're not giving up on that. So remembering God's judgment won't stop us being involved, engaging in moral questions, but it will change the shape of our engagement. Um, A great window into what what I mean by this is actually in Matthew chapter 18. So if you're looking at a Bible there, just flip over to Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. And what we see here, I think, is is a practice shaped by the kinds of things that Jesus has emphasized. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, says Jesus, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won the brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Now, notice the distinctive character Of this process. First, notice that the aim is not to condemn but to win the brother back over, to regain the brother. The aim isn't to show my superiority. Second, notice that this is a process that makes room for my own misunderstanding. The person is given space, they're allowed to talk, I might have got it wrong. Third, Notice that this process is kept as as private as possible. First, just you and the person. Then, one or two others. And then, only if you absolutely need to, does it become a kind of public matter. And this is because the aim is not to expose and criticise, but to assist, to help. But finally... Notice also that ultimately a judgment, a negative judgment, may have to be made. This person, if they will not listen, may have to be excluded from fellowship. There is a kind of judgment, but, and I'll come back to that actually when we talk about pearls and pigs. But notice for the moment that this is a judgment which is only sort of a judgment, right? It's not like this guy's put in prison or beaten up or anything. It's, it's a way of kind of saying, you know what, we've got to do something, but we want to recognize that actually God is the judge here. There's a humility to it. This is the kind of thing which really should shape church judgments. Christian communities should care very much about the lives of their members. Right? If, you, if you want a church that's never going to ask you any questions about your life, this is not the place. But we do so with practices that hopefully, God willing, this is what we want, are stamped by the reality that God will judge and the humility that that brings. Jesus is not telling us not to care about right and wrong. He's not telling us to do the impossible and to live without ever evaluating anything. He's calling us to remember that there is a great judge and a final judgment and to enable us to to, to act out of that knowledge in humility, but staying involved. Now, I'm going to pause there, uh, and I wonder if anybody has a question about this idea of judgment. I imagine not everything I've said has been completely clear in the middle there. Thank you. Um, I was just wondering if the passage from Matthew 18 that you just referred to, that refers quite specifically to brothers as in christian fellowship and yeah. what's the application then of judgment between from christians to non-christians thank you uh, i think that's very important um it's within a christian fellowship that uh these kind of practices can be we can have an expectation that they will work because when you become a christian you do something pretty full on which is you admit that you're a sinner and you don't expect um, you don't expect to be in the right most of the time and actually you have to be humbled to be a Christian we're all trying to be more humble but there's something profoundly humbling about saying actually Jesus needed to die to save me Um, and I think that That reality shapes the way Christians then live, or at least it ought to shape the way they live. And it creates expectations about the way we can deal with each other. Um, And so I think Jesus is talking about a a, a way of relating amongst his family. Now, when we talk about um, judging outsiders or whatever, judging people who do not share these convictions, I think it's more complicated Although I do think Jesus' call to not judge still applies, uh, we've just got to work out how to do it. And we've got to work out what are the appropriate practices, what are the appropriate ways for me to treat somebody remembering that God is judge. Um, and I think uh, I'm probably, this is probably not really answering your question, I think there's, a work, there's, there's some working out to do there and it requires some discernment in a situation. And one of the things I've said is that I don't think Jesus is giving us some absolute rule that we can just apply. We need to, we need to enter into our workplaces and our families and, and discover what it means that God will judge us too. And so we, we need to hold back from judging. Um, there's another thing to say about this, by the way, which is that within the New Testament, there, are, there is a legitimate place for judgment. Government, government is given the task of executing judgment on behalf of, um, as God's minister, and that's in Romans 13. Uh, and so there's a, there is a place, legitimate place in society for judgments, um, but that's a whole big other complicated question, which I don't really want to get into, if that's okay. Uh, that's probably an unsatisfactory answer, but are there other questions people have about this? okay that's all right uh can i suggest this is something you need to keep working on this is part of jesus teaching we need to keep thinking about because it's pretty full on what he says here he calls us to a radical humility uh in the light of what god is going to do that really ought to shape the way we live oh there is another question tristan i just did my wrap-up that's all right I I was just um, curious if you wanted to clarify a little bit more about what it means to let the church treat someone as a Gentile and a tax collector. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, At one level, the answer is I don't know, and that's because churches live in different situations all the time. So our church here is not the same as the church Jesus was speaking. Actually, there was no church when he was speaking to Matthew, they are just Jesus and his followers. Um, But the church of the New Testament is very different to our church today, and we live in a very different public context. Uh, So what it looks like to apply this kind of thing um, is not easy. And we've got to bring in other parts of the Bible. One really important one is 1 Corinthians chapters 5 and 6, uh, where Paul talks about actually the church having an obligation to judge those within the side, the community, right? So we've got to bring that alongside Jesus' words here. But it's the same kind of practice of humble judgment. And Paul talks about um, the time can come where actually you need to break fellowship with somebody in the hope that they will change their mind about the way they're living. Now, in our context, uh, what a process like Matthew 18 can look like, I hope, is that say, this is really getting into it, but say um, we discover, it becomes apparent that somebody in our community is living in a way which is totally out of step with the Christian gospel. And yet they're claiming to be a believer. And they're claiming there's no problem with that. Um, What I hope would be the case is that they would be first approached very privately, and spoken to. Um, Galatians has another great verse. It says, try and restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Um, My hope is that there would be a private care and concern for that. But if really that was going nowhere, uh, we might need to broaden uh, the the number of people involved. Um, And eventually it might lead to something like that person not being asked to not take communion uh, when we share the Lord's Supper together. Now, this is controversial stuff, um, and it's very difficult. But this is, in fact, this is actually going to connect with my next bit. So I'm going to move on after this. But this is the kind of stuff Jesus is asking us to think about. And the point is, it's a process that is stamped with a kind of humility and stamped with a kind of hesitancy if that makes sense. Tristan, can I, can I move on? Is that okay? Okay, because otherwise we're going to blow out. Um, we can keep talking about this. It's a really important issue. Uh, okay, so I've, I've, I've mostly dealt with judgment. Thankfully, the, le- the rest of this passage is really easy. No, it's not. The next verse, verse 6, is probably the most enigmatic thing Jesus ever said. What he does is he pictures you, and you're standing there, and there's a herd of wild, ferocious pigs in front of you. Grr, nasty pigs. And, um, and you've, you've, got, you've got some pearls, little pearls. And you, you get your pearls, and you throw them to the pigs. And the pigs sniff the pearls, and then they trample them, and they jump on you, and they eat you. And Jesus says, don't do that. What does that mean? I, I actually don't really know what it means. But I, I think there are a couple of things we can notice that can help us. Firstly, he says what not to do is, is not to give what is sacred to dogs and not to give pearls to pigs. And I think there's something significant in those descriptions. You see, there is a way of being generous to others that is actually careless with what is precious which doesn't rightly value what is truly valuable. I think this is the key to understanding this. You see, as well as making us pull back from harshly judging people, living with God in full view actually means we don't have to romanticize people either. It makes us able to recognize that there are ways of being generous to people which are good neither for them nor for us nor for the things we're being generous with. Because the fact is, there are, and I don't say this lightly, but there are actually things that are more important than other people. There is the truth. There is the kingdom of God. And we are not called to love people in a way that is deliberately careless and reckless with the truth is deliberately kind of flippant with what is important to god now again this is something we're going to have to discover what it means Uh, i'm sorry i can't be more helpful but just to notice that in matthew chapter 18 i think that is actually what ends up happening there's a process it's careful but eventually in some horrible sad circumstances you have to draw a line Because the truth can't be just abandoned for the sake of this one person feeling better. Well, they're the two don'ts. Let's move on to the two do's. The first is ask. Ask, says Jesus in verse 7. Seek, knock, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives, receives. He who seeks, finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. These three calls amount to one big encouragement to pray. And we see that that's the case in verses 9 to 11 where Jesus illustrates. He says, imagine you're a parent and you've got a kid and they ask you for a fish. Okay, you're not going to give them a snake. If they ask you for bread, you're not going to give them a rock because you're not a nasty person. Well, actually, you are, Jesus says. If you who are evil, did you see that, verse 11? And he says, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your heavenly Father know how to give good gifts to his children? You see, the reason we can be confident to pray is because prayer is a relationship with our Father in Heaven, who is far, far better than any possible parent we could have here on earth. And that's why we pray. And that helps us a lot with prayer. It helps us see that on the one hand, prayer is not just like a magic box where, you know, you you put some inputs and who knows what's going to come out. And on the other hand, prayer is not like, God is not like a genie who just gives you whatever you want, you know, up to a certain point he's a father, he loves us, he's very rich, and he's generous, but he's not a bad father. He's not going to give us things that are bad for us. That, I think, will help us to pray a lot. And I'm actually not going to say much more about that, uh, because I think Jesus just wants us to hear this encouragement to pray, to ask, you have a father in heaven. Well, finally, verse 12, so in everything, Jesus says. That so is important, by the way. It's like a therefore. It means we can't detach this sentence from the whole rest of the Sermon on the Mount as if it's just this aphorism we can put on the wall and that's that. So in everything, says Jesus, do to others what you would have them do to you. Now, many people know this verse. And if you ask them how they thought it should make them live, I wonder what you think they would say. Mostly I think people understand this verse negatively. Don't do to others what you wouldn't want them to do to you. Uh, it's It's a kind of motto for living politely with one another. It's a way of regulating our bad conduct so that we can kind of all manage to sit on a train together. But Jesus' words are actually much bolder than that. And we need to think about the way they're formulated. And we need to also not just apply them in the way we relate to strangers. You see, Jesus says, don't treat others as their behavior deserves. Don't treat others according to what is reasonable. Treat others according to how you would like them ideally to treat you. How would you like others to treat you? Well, of course, it depends which others you're talking about. If you're on a train, maybe all you want from people is for them to not smell and turn their iPod down. But that's not all you want from your close friends, is it? It's not all you want from your family. It's not all you want from your husband or your wife. It's not all you want from people at church. This is actually quite a radical call. Think about what it means. How would you you really love people to treat you? And it's not a tit-for-tat arrangement. There's actually no guarantee that others will treat you like this in return. This is not a nice wish. It's a summons to a radical generosity of spirit. And this is a logic, once again, like we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount over and over. It's a logic that is costly, but that does make sense when you remember that God is there, that there is one who guarantees the outcome, who will bring about a final reconciliation when the measure we use will be measured to us. I'm going to pause there again. I've flown through a few things. But I wonder if anybody has a question about these bits. Caitlin. Hi, Andrew. Um, Hello. When you go, we go back to verse 7, or actually verse 8, for everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks the door will be opened. Is that for everything that we ask and everything that we seek? Um, and maybe that comes back to the remembering it in light of who God is. Yeah. Um, but I'll let you answer that. I know. I think, um, I think it does come back to that. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't actually say what we will receive or what we will find or what will happen when the door is opened. Um, there's not a gap. It's not. It's, prayer is not like a slot machine. Where you, you know, or like one of those drink machines, you put your money in A4 and you get Snickers. Um, that doesn't mean it's random, right? We A4 Burger Rings, damn it! <laughs> but it's it's a relationship with a Father in heaven, uh, and I think this is a guarantee that God always answers prayer. Sometimes his answer is, that's not right for you now, but it's still an answer. Prayer is a relationship. So, yeah, this is not a kind of guarantee of, um, you know, you'll get what you ask for, but it's a guarantee that you will get something. Uh, And prayer really, really is an engagement with a father who loves us and loves for us to engage with him. I guess that's the way I'm taking it. Other questions is over there. Hi, I just have a question regarding, um, verse 11. When Jesus calls the people, he's speaking to evil. Yeah. Um, full on. I'm just wondering, like, does he actually mean evil? And can we actually apply that to ourselves now, considering that, like, Paul calls us saints and, Mm. you know, no longer sinners, um, just wondering yeah how we how we take that it is a, it is a striking statement uh, jesus i think did not have oh he he did not have overly romantic notions about people there's this great bit in john chapter 2 where um john writes that jesus actually for his part did not entrust himself to anybody for he knew what was in man Uh, The Bible has a very realistic view about human beings. Um, We have lots of potential, but but we are wicked. Uh, We have gone a long way from God, and there is a deep corruption in the human heart. Uh, And to the extent that Jesus is able to see it and say, you who are evil now i think that's partly in contrast to god and and this is where we, we we live in this world where these kind of categories don't make sense but that's why the bible is so important because when you read the bible you're you're exposed to realities be, that, that we don't see in our day-to-day life we're exposed to a god who is infinitely holy and next to whom we just look pretty pathetic. Now, you ask a really good question, which is, how do we think about ourselves, uh, given that Paul goes on to call Christian saints? Um, the reason for that is not because of anything in us. It's because if you're a Christian, uh, your wickedness has been overcome by the Lord Jesus' death and resurrection. He died to save us. He died to forgive our sins and that actually makes a real difference so that we no longer have to think of ourselves only in these terms. I think there's something wise about still recognizing this. Recognizing that we're still part of a world which is evil but we don't have to, that doesn't have to be where we end anymore. Uh, We know that we have been justified Um, and that's not a cause for pride at all because we didn't do it it's a cause for thanksgiving okay we've gone slightly over time i'm just going to leave it there unless somebody does anybody have a really pressing question thank you for not asking about pearls and pigs let me try and draw these threads together as we finish at one level these 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 different commands can feel a bit disconnected can't they Don't judge, ask, do to others. But I hope we've seen tonight that there is actually a deep logic underlying them. The same deep logic that underlies the whole Sermon on the Mount. It's the the deep logic of how awareness of who God is shapes how we live in this world. And that's why there's actually something very powerful in the way these ideas are placed side by side here. We're told to avoid one thing, judging, and to embrace another, asking. And I think there's something quite powerful in that, something symbolic. It's as if asking is presented as an alternative to judging, a different way of engaging with the world. Now, to be sure, these are not absolutes, right? It's not like it's a matter of either ask or judge, But there's a valuable contrast here, because judging and asking can can kind of represent for us different ways of engaging with the world, different ways of living. One represents a way of operating where I am at the center, where I call the shots and I live by my own decisions. The other represents a way of operating where things now revolve around God where I defer to his judgment and depend upon his care. One represents living by sight, the other living by faith. And so this evening, I want to set this contrast before you and just invite you to live by faith. We can can live lives symbolized by asking rather than judging. Lives oriented around God and not ourselves. Now, of course, it's not at the end of the day just a matter of preference which of these is better. As we'll see next week, everything is at stake in this question. But just for this evening, let me ask you, which way do you want to live? Which kind of person do you want to be? in your close relationships, in your family, with your friends, at church. We can live by our own judgments in a closed world of strict justice, or at least our perspective on justice, where all questions are answered already and our faults have the last word. Or we can live by God's generosity, open to new things for ourselves And for others, free to not judge, without giving in to others foolishness. And to live with a radical generosity of spirit. Which way do you want to live? If, like me, you want to live the second way, the way Jesus teaches, then the thing to do, of course, is to ask. For everyone who asks, receives. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for these words. Some of them are quite difficult. And some of them, we don't exactly know what they're going to mean in every part of our lives. But we thank you for these words which remind us to live our lives centered upon God. Lord, we know so often we forget about you. We forget about our Father in heaven and we forget that we will one day be judged. But we we ask tonight, Lord, that you would open the door to us so that we would live with God in full view and learn to serve you in these ways. And we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.